Hello and welcome to Computers and Creativity by the Purple Blurb series in the decor of a museum. Thank you very much for coming tonight. Um, we regret that John Maeda could not join us tonight. He sends his apologies. Um, but we're very much looking forward to the four uh, interlocutors who we have here representing a range of perspectives on computing and the visual and literary arts. Uh, and looking forward to the great conversation that will come of that and to your questions and discussion afterwards. The Purple Blurb series is uh, a series that's um, since 2007 hosted readings and presentations of electronic literature, digital writing, uh, very broadly interpreted so that uh, we've had people doing uh, uh, work that's very uh, heavy in video, uh, work that's uh, generative, um, work that has multimedia aspects, um, and branches off in many different ways. So we're really glad to make the connection to the visual arts and to computational practice and the long history of that in that area. Um, I want to point out the events that are coming up this semester in Purple Blurb. We have two others on Thursday, March 31st, 4 p.m. in MIT's room 2105. Amaranth Borsuk will be presenting between page and screen, a work that engages with uh, not only augmented reality, but also poetics in the book arts. Uh, it'd be a fascinating presentation and talk of a piece that I've seen recently at um, the ELO's conference at Brown, um, which John Cayley organized. <coughs> then on May 7th, that's a Saturday, at 3 p.m. in MIT's room 2105, uh, we have Brian Moriarty, the creator of Wishbringer, Trinity, and Loom, and uh, two researchers and digital media creators from MIT, Clara Fernandez-Barra and Zuzana Huzarova, who are presenting about interactive fiction, graphical adventures, and electronic literature. And we hope you can make it on that day. That program is also part of the Boston Cyber Arts Festival on May 7th. Um, so with that, I want to introduce my collaborator, Emily Soleil, who worked uh, with the Decor of a Museum to uh, bring this panel together, and who's going to introduce the members of the panel. Thank you, Nick, and thank you um, to Purple Blurb for collaborating with us on this panel. We're very excited to be able to um, bring all these experts together and generate a great discussion tonight. Um, my name is Emily Soleil. I'm the curatorial educator at the De Cordova Sculpture Park and Museum. Um, I want to thank everyone for coming out tonight. It's great to see it's such a nice turnout. This panel was put together originally as part of um, exhibition-related programming for a show that's up at the De Cordova right now called Drawing with Code, works from the Anna Michael Spalter collection. The exhibition covers computer-assisted artwork that was created from the 1950s until present day. So it's a really nice historical overview of computer art. Um, what's great is that it's all from the collection of Anna Michael Spalter, a Providence-based couple whose passion in collecting revolves around computer art, which is this really over, often overlooked um, part of art history. So it's really great that Michael and Anne have really devoted their, their collection to this medium. Um, everybody should have received a guest pass to De Cordova on your way in. If you didn't get one, please see me after the panel. I can make sure you get one. Um, I want to 
highlight a couple of events that are coming up in coordination with the Drawing with Code exhibition in case you want to use your pass to come out for that. Um, the next one is this Saturday. One of our panelists, Mark Wilson, is going to be giving an artist talk at 3 p.m. And on April 23rd, another of our panelists, George Fifield, is going to be speaking with Victoria and Albert Museum senior curator for computer art, Douglas Dodds, to do a curator tour of the exhibition. That's also at 3 p.m. Both of those can be found on our website, decordova.org. The exhibition's open until April 24th. Your passes are good for a year, so we encourage you to come on out. I also want to put in a plug for the Boston Cyber Arts Festival. The, um, the exhibition on view is also created in collaboration with Boston Cyber Arts. This year it's from April 22nd to May 8th, and information about that can be found on bostoncyberarts.org. Um, one quick announcement, if everyone can silence their cell phones, that would be great. Um, and I just want to quickly thank Anna Michael Spalter for their passion and collection and making all of this possible. So thank you. So I'm going to introduce the panel now. Um, we'll start with George Fifield, who's been stepping in as moderator. George is a new media curator, writer about art and technology, and a teacher. He is the founding director of Boston Cyber Arts Incorporated, a nonprofit arts organization which produces the Boston Cyber Arts Festival. This international biennial festival of artists working in new technologies involves numerous exhibitions of visual arts, music, dance, and theatrical performances, film and video presentations, and symposia at numerous arts and educational organizations throughout Massachusetts. He is also an independent curator of new media with numerous projects here and abroad. His most recent exhibitions include guest curating for Drawing with Code and Act React Interactive Art Installation Art at the Milwaukee Art Museum. For 13 years until 2006, George Fifield was curator of new media at the Decordova Sculpture Park and Museum, so we have a long-standing relationship with him. He was executive co-producer for the Electronic Electronic Canvas, an hour-long documentary on the history of the media arts that aired on PBS in 2000. Fifield writes on the variety of media, technology, and art topics for numerous publications. Leah Be Beakley is our next panelist. I wasn't expecting this big reveal as you guys came up to the stage. Um, <laughs> Leah Beakley directs the MIT Media Lab's High-Low Tech Research Group, which investigates the integration of high and low technology from cultural, material, and practical perspectives, with the goal of engaging diverse groups of people in developing their own technologies. She is a well-known expert in the field of electronic textiles, and her work in this area includes developing a method for creating cloth-printed circuit boards and designing this commercially available lily pad Arduino toolkit. Her research has been featured in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Popular Science, Craft Magazine, Journal of Architectural Design, the Denver Post, and the Taipei Times. Beakley received a PhD and MS degrees in computer science from the University of Colorado at Boulder and a BA in physics from Skidmore College. John, you're up next. <laughs> John Cayley has practiced as a poet, translator, publisher, and book dealer, and all these activities have often intersected with his training in Chinese culture and language. 
His last printed book of poems, adaptations, and translations was Ink Bamboo from 1996. Kaylee was the winner of the Electronic Literature Organization's Award for Poetry in 2001. He has taught and been associated with a number of universities in the United Kingdom and was an honorary research associate in the Department of English, Royal Holloway College, University of London. In the United States, he has taught or directed research at the University of Cal California, San Diego, and Brown University, where arriving in the fall of 2007, he is now appointed as a five-year visiting professor of literary arts with a brief to teach and develop writing in digital media. His most recent work explores ambient poetics and programmable media and writing in immersive alternative environments with parallel theoretical interventions concerning the role of code and the temporal properties of textuality. And last but not least, Mark Wilson is a painter and digital art pioneer who has lived in New England since 1971. His computer-generated works have been widely exhibited both in the US and in Europe. He participated in many of the most influential exhibitions on computer art, including SIGGRAPH art shows at the IBM Gallery in New York City, Ars Electronica in Linz, Austria, and the Digital Pioneers exhibition at the Vittoria and Albert Museum, and wrote a book called Drawing with Computers. In 1980, Wilson began using computers and learned to program his own software. In the 80s, he worked with pen plotters, but more recently has used large format archival inkjet printers. Wilson has received several awards from organizations such as the National Endowment for the Arts, the Connecticut Commission on the Arts and Ars Electronica. He has taught, lectured, and has been a visiting artist at a number of institutions, including the University of California at Santa Barbara, Yale, Carnegie Mellon, and the School of Visit Visual Arts. Wilson's works are in numerous public, corporate, and private collections. Born in Oregon in 1943, he is a graduate of Pomona College and received his MFA in 1970, sorry, 1967 from the Yale School of Art. And he's also an exhibiting artist in the Drawing with Code exhibition at De Cordova. So without further ado, welcome to our panelists. Is this on? Yes. With um, John's absence, I've been thrust into the role of um, moderator here. And uh, so I'll start off. And, um, but also very interested in hearing what all the other panelists have to say. Uh, I want to, as the curator, as, as someone who's not a practicing artist, um, I sort of want to uh, start by talking a little bit about drawing with code and the ideas that it brought up um, uh, in my mind as I was putting it together. And it was a fascinating project. Truly, I don't think I've ever curated a show before that I learned so much doing, um, that doing the curating. It was, it was a phenomenal piece of history I wasn't aware of. To sort of um, uh, correct Emily a little bit, it, it is a show of computer graphic prints from the beginning of the um, uh, people who were doing this up to the present, but it is about the pioneers in this field. And so the most recent work is recent work done by people who were working in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, Marcus, probably um, the latest of these people since you didn't start into the beginning of the 80s. Uh, this is a group who called themselves the Algorithms. Uh, in that they were really trying to um, 
use algorithms to create visual art. And it was a difficult task in the beginning. And I want to just show you just four pieces from the show. This is a work by Ben Leposky, done in 1952. It is analog programming, not digital programming. Um, Leposky was a sign painter um, in Ohio. And he was also a real, had a real interest in mathematics. Um, one of the other things he did for a living was he wrote the magic squares mathematical magic squares for Ripley's Believe It or Not that were in every Sunday paper. Uh, he got the idea that it would be interesting to start analog programming oscilloscopes. And this is an image taken from an oscilloscope with silver print. Um, and he did an entire series of these. He called them his oscillons. Um, and he kept going through this all through the 50s. Um, he actually did get a um, serious um, exhibition opportunity when his work was picked up by the U.S. State Department and traveled around the world representing the United States and sort of cutting-edge art. Frieder Nake. Um, Frieder Nake was a mathematician living in Stuttgart, Germany, um, who fell under the sway of a number of German theorists about the potential for using these brand new digital computers for visualization, and became one of the very first artists ever to have an exhibition um, in Stuttgart um, at an art gallery of his work. Uh, now, just to sort of lay the f idea at the time here, these are people who were um, working on mainframe computers that they had no control over when they were going to be able to use. Universities um, uh, and other organizations, um, some private companies, uh, and they were done in Fortran, on punch cards. Uh, you were not allowed to even feed the punch cards into the computers. Uh, you had to hand them to an acolyte who would run them after hours because, of course, you couldn't do something as um, dilettantist as make art on a computer during working hours. And um, often as not, in the words of uh, Harold Cohen, um, you'd come back the next morning to find that the computer was saying that you were missing a common line 73. Um, Cohen went on to add that if the computer was so smart, why didn't it just put the damn comma in there? Um, and then you'd start all over again. Um, so here we have this, these very early attempts at what can be done with this kind of work.
I, it's interesting the way that these um, artists, and I've chosen these four for exactly this reason, um, kind of fall into one of three um, perspectives. Uh, you have the tinkerers, like Ben Leposky, um, not really um, an artistic background and not really a computing background. You have the people who start as mathematicians or computer savvy people um, like uh, Nake, um, Frieder Nake, um, but then you have a number of people who came to it as artists, but very early on realized that there were things that code could do that were um, very similar to the work they themselves were doing. This is Vera Molnar, um, born in Bud Budapest, lived in Paris, um, still lives in Paris um, her entire life, and actually as an artist in the 60s was drawing highly repetitive images over and over and over again. And sometime in the mid 60s, somebody came up to her and said, why don't you have a computer do this instead? And she never looked back. Um, she was recently in the large L show that was at the Pompidou Center of women artists from around the world, um, a great honor. and. Um, Really beautiful work. I hope you get to see some of the other pieces of hers at the Decordova. And finally, Manfred Moore. Um, born in Germany, uh, but lived all over the world. Um, finally coming to Paris in the mid-60s um, and earning a living as a jazz saxophone player. Uh, he also became interested in what the computer could do um, and started a series of works which culminated in the mid-70s, in 1972 in fact, um, where he was exploring the cube, not just the um, three-dimensional cube, but as he grew fourth-dimensional hypercubes, fifth-dimensional hypercubes, and examining them from all these different angles. So a visual, or in his case, a, a musical um, artist who studied painting but then became um, a computer artist. And his, actually, interestingly, he was trying to do this at the Sorbonne and not having any um, success getting access to computers. Um, but he, found, he read in the paper that a new computer had just been purchased by the French meteorological institution, the, the, the governmental group that told the weather. And he went and got an interview with the director and explained that he would only come in after hours, he wouldn't mess anything up, but could he use the computer in their plotter? And the director said yes, and then he leaned across the table and whispered to him, I'm an artist too. <laughs> and so he had this access to a computer, which was very difficult at the time. But interestingly, in the exhibition, you'll see that this was an international movement of just a few people, very quickly all knew each other, um, artists in Spain, in Scandinavia, in Italy, in Japan, Germany, France, the United States, um, all fascinated by this new um, art form. And there was initial success. Um, there were, like I said, Naki had a show in 64, um, a couple other artists had um, gallery shows. There was a very big exhibition um, at, um, uh, in London at the London Institute of Contemporary Art 
um, called cybernetic serendipity that, that not just looked at the visual arts, but also um, people who are using computers for music and making robots and things like that. But all in all, they were completely shunned by the art world. Um, and there were real reasons for it back then. Um, back then, if you used a computer to make art, then you weren't an artist. The computer was. Now, we, this is not an issue we think of anymore today. Everybody understands the computer is a tool with which to make art. Back then, who's the artist? Well, if you're using a computer, you're not the artist. Um, and there were other issues, just of the political time. Manfred Moore reports that in 1969, he was giving a lecture at the Sorbonne about his work when a student stood up and threw a tomato at him and yelled, you can't make art on a computer. Those are war machines. <laughs> um, so it was an uphill fight. And I think one of the things that I found so fascinating in doing this show was coming f as a new media curator with this sense that everybody understands that you can make art on computers these days, finding this whole body of work that had been hidden, had fallen off the map um, because of the prejudices of the time. Um, so not to really make that a theme, but I think, I think we can, um, I, I'd like to keep this conversation going back to these, you know, to what happens when um, digital technology meets an art form for the very first time and what, especially um, in the visual arts, what it meant to make art with code. Um, and what I want to do is start with Mark. And we're, we're going to kind of keep, try and keep this sort of a conversation, um, but um, uh, as well as everyone talking about themselves. But um, if you could talk about your work and, and some of these themes that we're sort of developing here. And it means you need this. Yes. We all need computers. <coughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Nice. Here, yeah, put that right there. Oops. started my career as a, a painter. I went to art school and I learned to push uh, paint around with a, with a brush on uh, canvas. And I, I really didn't know anything about uh, computers. But I loved uh, a lot of the imagery uh, that became uh, available. Uh, with computers. I loved the actual looks of computers. I loved the appearance of chips and I loved diagrams. I loved aerial photographs and uh, it was in this kind of a background that I developed as a, a painter. So this is a painting from uh, 1973 and this is the kind of stuff that I was doing uh, today I walked around the MIT campus and I looked at all these labs and it's like 
my God, this stuff is absolutely fantastic. I, I love all these machines and these diagrams and all this, this kind of technical stuff. And my interest as a painter in this kind of imagery was to uh, depict a kind of new landscape that uh, was available. Like, uh, for instance, the Italian futurists who were fascinated with uh, modern life, with speed, with automobiles, with airplanes. I think that artists have always been naturally drawn to the uh, kind of uh, things that uh, surround them. And, and it was in this kind of context that I developed uh, as a painter. So this is like a painting on canvas. It's uh, about six feet by six feet. And as you can see, it's very, very complex. It took me months and months to do these things. I did them with a, a ruling pen. And if you look up in the upper left-hand corner, you can see a, a little green uh, circuit board uh, with a bunch of uh, uh, chips on it. So this, was, this painting was done in uh, 1973. And uh, about 1980, I joined the personal computer revolution that was happening at the time, that all these machines, which had formerly only been in large institutions, uh, they were very expensive, they were difficult to use, uh, and the artists had very limited access. But all of a sudden, that all changed uh, with the revolution of Apple's and TRS-80s. And so in 1980, I bought a uh, Texas Instruments uh, TI-99-4A computer, which is a, uh, uh, by today's standards, is an incredibly uh, primitive uh, device. But it had a uh, 24 by 36 uh, character mapped uh, color display. And when I bought this computer, I, I had to do two things. I first, I had to learn how to program it and how to do something uh, with it, which was uh, a somewhat of a, a challenge. And I wasn't interested in any of uh, the software that was available. And my background as a fine artist led me to get involved with programming. And uh, so I learned a little bit about programming. And I realized that programming is a very natural uh, extension of a lot of the concerns of 20th and 21st century artists. It's uh, a great deal of abstract art was involved with a kind of procedural uh, process that is very uh, directly analogous to uh, writing software. So I learned to write software and then I had to figure out uh, some way to make art with uh, this machine. Uh, I decided that instead of using uh, the kind of ephemeral color display on the computer, I would use uh, what was a very common device at the time, a pen plotter which is uh, simply a mechanical device controlled by a computer that could be uh, programmed to draw a line from one point to another. So I hit upon this technique of using this pen plotter and this display from the Texas Instruments computer to map these, these characters uh, onto the uh, paper. 
And uh, I was also interested, as a painter, I was interested in creating complex, colorful images. Uh, but these machines would only draw lines. So I had to kind of uh, fudge this in, in a way to take the, uh, the limited uh, capacity of this line drawing instrument and try and turn it into a, uh, a more painterly uh, device. So this was, uh, this was a very, uh, this was done uh, 30 years ago and this was, I hit upon this procedure of mapping these characters uh, 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 onto the paper. And you could program the computer and you could uh, structure uh, this character. And I basically have been using this methodology uh, ever since, uh, and it's uh, served me well. And as I, uh, as I began to play with these machines, I realized that there was a lot of uh, possibilities in terms of creating, all of a sudden creating three-dimensional spaces, or the illusion of three-dimensional spaces, mapping these pixels onto uh, polar coordinates. And so, although this is a, a, a line-drawing instrument, it, it all of a sudden uh, took on the possibility of creating more uh, painterly uh, images. So I have continued to work in this way uh, since that time and worked on a variety of different uh, uh, machines including uh, laser printers and uh, about 2000 I began using uh, large format inkjet printers. Uh, the technology for uh, these printing inks finally became light fast and uh, permanent and so I was able to uh, use the inkjet printer to achieve even more of a kind of painterly uh, effect uh, with, the, uh, uh, with my software. This, for instance, is a, a print on paper that is uh, 24 inches by uh, 72 inches. It could be much larger, uh, of course. Uh, but uh, again, I'm using the, uh, this sort of uh, pixel mapping technique, this methodology that I developed, and uh, it also allows me to create this very finely, exquisitely uh, textured uh, imagery uh, with the uh, printer and the software. Lastly, this is a, a recent image that, uh, again, is uh, done with the inkjet printer. And you can see that I've sort of alternated between flat two-dimensional imagery and three-dimensional imagery, although fairly ab abstract. Uh, and uh, this is a recent work from uh, uh, a year ago uh, done with uh, inkjet printer. And again, you can see that it has a lot of detail and it uses this kind of pixel map mapping technique that creates a almost kind of a grammar a visual grammar uh, in, in the finished uh, picture. So this is, uh, gives you an overview of my work. And it's, it's true that in the early days, uh, there was, uh, 
I don't know if contempt was, is perhaps too strong of a word, but it was certainly the art world gave us all a cold shoulder. Uh, it, it's uh, somewhat ironic in, in, in the sense of 20th uh, century art, which always prided itself on being a very avant-garde and cutting edge, could at the same time be very conservative in a way. And uh, the idea of people using computers was, was uh, really uh, rejected uh, by, by a lot of the fine art world. I think a lot of these artists, like myself, were so intrigued and so mesmerized <coughs> by this whole process that uh, in some way we didn't really pay any attention to what, uh, what the art uh, world uh, thought of us because it was such an incredibly fascinating uh, experience and uh, it turned out to be very rewarding in terms of the kind of visual discoveries uh, that we were uh, involved in. And not entirely true. Um, Manfred Moore, um, in his talk uh, previously at the de Cordova, um, said that at one point in the 70s, he simply declared he was never going to tell anybody in the fine art world that he used a computer. He just, and it just when he mentioned it, conversation stopped and the room got cold and so he was just not going to mention that anymore. Well I in, in I think about 1983 I had applied to the National Endowment for the Arts uh, several times and I submitted slides of my work and I, I said very specifically that uh, I had written the software which I was very proud that I was able to do <laughs> write these very simple programs and get these machines to do anything, and uh, sent slides. And I was uh, refused by, uh, by the National Endowment for the Arts. And I think in 1984, I submitted work. I submitted slides of drawings, and I didn't say anything about computers. And that year, voila, I got a grant. <laughs> uh, what was the first language you learned? Uh, basic. Basic. So that, that first piece was done in basic. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, John? Uh, I was wondering whether people thought my story would be different. <laughs> and bizarrely, it's, in, it's incredibly similar. I mean, there's, there, there are differences. There are different, I mean, the, there are differences in the, the nature of the resistance. And I think there's still quite strong resistance in the world of literature to using machines and programmable machines to make literary art. How do I? Oh. I'm going to get my visual aids up. The, oh. <laughs> These are always. Can I make it a slideshow, Nick? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I knew this was possible. <laughs> okay. So, but I mean, we don't have to look at this at the moment, and it's not very easy to see. But um, uh, what I wanted to say first was, oh, but I don't, I don't want it to, I don't have to pause it. It's always something. Okay, we're good. Um, 
what I wanted to say first was I'm very, very grateful to Nick for roping me into this uh, excellent event and to George for uh, curating uh, a show of, the, of, the, uh, draw of drawing with code. Um, I'm, I was aware of the work of the algorithms uh, minimally and then saw, saw an exhibition at the Victorian Albert Museum in London called Digital Pioneers, which was last year? Last year. Yeah, 2009. February, yeah. And um, uh, it sort of um, completely was so much better than the, than the than, oh, this is, I shouldn't say that. There was digital art downstairs, contemporary digital art, and, and, and although it was all very interesting, and again, I know m many of the artists in that exhibition, I found the Digital Pioneers exhibition a little bit stronger, shall we say, because the, there was this sense of, of a sort of a, an, an address to, the, to, 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 to computation as a medium that, that although it's present in, in contemporary digital art and uh, it doesn't, it, it, it was there from the beginning uh, with, with, uh, with many of the people that George has already introduced and with, with, with Mark Wilson. Um, and so it was very exciting to see that work. And then to hear Manfred Moore talk and then Jean-Pierre Hébert talk recently in Providence, that was also very exciting. Um, okay, so then my story, uh, which is, I learned Fortran first too. Uh, and, uh, and started in the 70s uh, at a university, uh, feeding uh, or handing my cards over to be, to be processed. And, um, and, then, and then I got into um, doing linguistic analysis of text for, for editions. And, and my, uh, my supervisor at the time became obsessed with personal computers, and com personal computers, computers became affordable. And then, uh, a friend of mine, out of the blue, wrote me a letter. And that letter was written in uh, a form, I, I think his, his was actually acrostic. He wrote me an acrostic letter. In other words, there was D for, uh, you know, D was replaced by the word dear. E was replaced by the word, say, eat. A was replaced by the word R, etc. Right, you get the idea. It's a sort of code, and it's, and it's a very interesting sort of code. And it's something that you can, it's also something that's easy to program. So immediately I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. It produces a funny text, a text which only has 26 words. Right? So you, you, you're, you're able to do strange things like write all of literature with just 26 words by, by replacing the letters with the words. Uh, I thought that was fascinating. Um, and, then, and so I started to do it. And then I, be, then I discovered that there were, uh, there were literary practitioners, serious literary practitioners, who were experimenting in the same way. There was Emmett Williams, who American living in Germany, and a Fluxus artist. Uh, then I learned about Jackson McLow, who was a sort of furious, fairly also a Fluxus artist, and a serious, uh, a serious poet uh, who died quite recently and, and has a huge body of work. And he worked in this way as well. And then John Cage, and people in, my, in people who be, who became part of my my own specific field of of uh, what I prefer to call writing in digital media, uh, actually did programming for Cage. When Cage produced these again mesostics, where he he did this this process of reading through a text, looking for looking for words that contained the letters say of a name. So he read through Ezra Pound's cantos looking for words that had an E in them, and then a word that had a Z in them, a Z in them, and so on, right? And, uh, I, I get, and these produced texts, which to me were interesting, 
although, although they were considered by the literary world to be a little bit of sort of game playing, right? Too ludic, as, they, as it was called at the time. Uh, tinker toys, what are, what are you doing? Not serious, you're not actually writing, are you? This was, this was, uh, this is still a problem for me, but, but, or, I mean, actually I'm, I'm over it. <laughs> um, but, but, I, but luckily I was a poet, and poets, poets are allowed to do, you know, poets are supposed to treat language as if it's a type of material, and, and to do things with it that are, that are at the, possibly at the sublexical, you know, below meaning. Rhyme is below meaning, assonance is below meaning, it, it's, it doesn't, it, you can't look at it up in a dictionary to find out what it means, is what I mean. Um, and, um, and so it was okay for me to play these sort of games, I thought. So I continued. And, um, and that kind of worked because it, as, as, you, as you progressed into the 80s, um, uh, eventually we had, uh, you know, the, the network was, was establishing itself uh, and the, the the watershed was the mid-90s when, when suddenly there was a browser that allowed people to use the, the, uh, what was to become the World Wide Web. And, and um, there was this notion of hypertext at the time, which is now familiar to everybody, hypertext. And also in the 90s, a literature developed, which was a hypertext literature. It was, it was, it was believed by by my colleague, predecessor at Brown, Robert Coover, that, that a, a large proportion of fictional writing practice would migrate to hypertext because it was a flexible and interesting way to write fiction. Um, and that hasn't panned out. We all use hypertext. We don't read, or we don't, uh, I mean, we do. It's possible to read hypertext. but or fiction as hypertext, but it hasn't become a form that, is, that has persisted or become popular. Uh, and meanwhile, there's, there's also the poets in the background just wanting to do whatever might be possible with these machines, and, and I was one of those. So, so um, skip, a whole lot of, uh, skip a whole lot of time there, and um, uh, uh, Robert Coover established, this is just an example of the sort of thing that is now possible because of the way culture has changed. Robert Coover introduces electronic writing into uh, an MFA creative writing program at Brown. So we have, uh, we, we, have not, we used to have one, now we have two writers a year who work in a genre which, which is called electronic writing. I mean, there are all sorts of problems with this, but it, 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 it's happened. And now I teach there, and in fact, in fact, they just made me regular faculty. So, so now, now I get to teach uh, something which, I, again, I prefer to call writing digital media, in which, in which I, I encourage, in the same way that in, in music, in visual art, the, the notion that, that an algorithm, that computation can be an integral part of an aesthetic practice that can have, a, it can have an aesthetic of its own. Um, I, I, I purvey the idea that in writing that might also be possible. Right? And, the, and the way that I do that, for instance, this is a, this is a, this is a, 
uh, a piece from a, a thing I've got going called a, a collaboration with Daniel C. Howe called the Reader's Project. And this would be live, and the different colored areas are places where little, little agents are reading through a text. And they, so they, they move through the text like it was a grid. And they, they look for certain linguistic features in their neighborhoods. And they, they may not just move in the way that we would normally move, assuming that's natural to go along a line and then quickly back and then along a line and then quickly back, right? Very natural. And um, these things do slightly different. They might go up and down a bit. If they find things nearby that are of literary interest, they might, they might vary. And, um, and th this seems to me like completely legitimate. Uh, you know, you, there, there should be a way to make this artistic. And then, I don't know whether I'm going on too long, but then quickly, another, another example of what might be done. We now have Google. And Google, for me, uh, is, is a window onto language. Uh, so for free, or close to nothing, I can get a huge amount of information quickly about natural language behavior. So if you, for instance, if you, if, you, if you type a phrase into Google with quote marks around it, you get a count. That count is the number of times that phrase appears in the, in the index of Google. You can do all sorts of very interesting things with that, believe me. And the, uh, so, I, so for instance, I have, a, I have an, another, a, another line of practice which I call writing to be found, where I, where I construct texts and test them against Google to see whether parts of them are found or not, right? Whether they're found very frequently or very infrequently. And you can do things like you can construct poems, which are poems which where all of the phrases in the lines are never, have never been written, say. Or not by anybody in Google. <laughs> that has been indexed by Google accurately. So, and and the, 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 another horrifying aspect is that there's a lot of artificial language out there now. So, so although, although this looks like a natural language corpus, is actual a natural plus, plus now uh, artificial language corpus. Google stops you doing anything programmatic with it, which I think is wrong. I don't think they should stop us doing that. And these are, these are examples of, of uh, just quickly, now the way this work I see is being uh, got out into the world is more in terms of installation than in, than in terms of publication. So uh, that's not uh, necessarily the case. Of course, you could have, you could have uh, paper production, printed productions that could be produced by, by process generative uh, literary art. And uh, so this is a piece that has a, a reader on the screen and then it has an iPad which is linked uh, and it also has a book. So the book is closed. It's actually reading Adam Smith phrase by phrase and then, and then sending, and sending those phrases to Google to be looked up in, in, the, in the image, in the image uh, search of Google. So it reads, it reads Adam Smith via Google. And this is an example of what is on the screen, which is just to show you a certain type of, of um, slightly uncanny reader where, where uh, although this just streams horizontally, and if you just watch the center line, then you would be reading linearly. But it provides you with a typeset neighborhood 
for all the words, that, that, uh, that makes the words feel comfortable as if they're on a page, but they're not on anything that's like a page. So, I mean, that, that, that's very sort of a sketchy overview, but, but, I, but I, I just wanted to, as quickly as I could, get over the possibility that there's a whole world of artistic practice that is un, unambiguously lip, literary, and uh, more proof of that is in the Electronic Literature Collection, Volume 1, Electronic Literature Collection, Volume 2, which, uh, you know, the the aesthetics are all over the place, the practices are all over the place. It's hard to know exactly where we're going to go, but, but nonetheless, it, it, needs, uh, it needs to be seriously addressed and opened up. How many universities like Brown have now established digital writing programs? Um, I know Brown was sort of the first. As far as I know, I think, I think, I think we're still the only MFA program that where, where it's established, as it were, and, and where you know, there's a person on the faculty whose job it is to, to see that it's taken forward. I, I have a favorite um, Brown story, which is, for those of you who don't know, a cave is a commercially available virtual reality environment um, very expensive, usually purchased by the organic chemistry department or the math department uh, at a university so that they can go moving organic chemistry molecules around in space. And occasionally at different universities, the visual arts department, if they have somebody who's interested in virtual reality, gets the use of it. At Brown, it was the literature department that got their <laughs> hands on it. And you could watch flying poems with words <laughs> whizzing around your head. Um, Leah brings a sort of a different um, uh, perspective to all of this. Uh, yes. Um, so let's see where to begin. Um, uh, I guess in in one way of kind of approaching the work is I, I feel like we've heard from uh, visual artists, uh, a visual artist and a poet, and in some way. Um, you could think of the work that I do and, and that um, my students also do as uh, more in sympathy with uh, sculpture, so kind of working out in the world. Um, we also, uh, our approach differs from that of kind of the previous work in, in a few other ways as well, rather than kind of using the computer to generate um, objects or artifacts, we kind of take the computer apart and put it into things. And to the extent that we can, what we really want to do is kind of rebuild the computer out of everyday kind of world materials. So we're really interested in re-examining and rethinking and rebuilding kind of the, the material that we think of when we think of computation. Um, so, let me actually, okay, let me show you just some of the work that, that I do, um, and also some of the work that my students have been doing. Um, I also want to make a confession before I get too far, which is that um, I'm not an artist, um, and I say that not um, to kind of uh, distance myself in a in a negative way, but more I, I want to make that clear because I hold the term artist with um, I, I I think that's a, a, a 
a very important term, and it's a term that often gets abused. Um, and I don't feel it's appropriate to, to claim that term for myself. Um, I'm much more of a designer, and you'll see in my work that, that the themes that I am particularly obsessive about and interested in kind of fall into the realm of much more of what you would think of a designer being interested in and obsessed with. So things like pattern and color um, um, and things along those lines. But, but we do, I do and my students do, we do have some interesting relationships with and certainly great sympathy with artists. Okay, so lots of explanation. Let's look at some stuff. Um, so actually, maybe I will start here. So I, just to give you a bit of context, um, as kind of uh, George mentioned in the introduction, I'm a professor here at MIT. I head a research group called High Low Tech, where we investigate this integration of materials and computation and electronics. Um, we do some design and engineering work along those lines. And then we also do some work in trying to make tools and processes that enable other people to work in a similar way. So um, I'm going to talk today about, again, some of my own work and then some of the work that my students have been doing. But just to kind of give you a heads up, this is our research group's site. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the images are kind of funky. But um, um, Now I just want to show you images of a few projects that um, I've worked on that give you a sense of the kind of stuff that we do. So maybe starting with a, a simple project. So this, um, this image here um, is an image of one genre of material exploration that we've been um, embarking on. In particular, this is an investigation of how we can construct electronics and computation out of paper and paint. So what you're seeing here is an, a, a very simple electrical circuit, but one who, that's made out of paper and paint um, with the addition of some traditional electronic components. So here, the circuitry are these squiggly um, lines that you see there. Um, and they're just painted down onto a sheet of paper. And then there are these attachable um, electronic modules that you can attach and detach from the piece of paper. Um, you can do more um, sophisticated and interactive designs if you incorporate small computers into these sketches or drawings. So this is just a simple example of a, uh, a more complex sketch that's actually interactive um, in a more sophisticated way. Uh, oh, that looks terrible. I'll skip that one. Let's go back to. Um, uh, to here, and I'll show you actually what might be easier to do is <coughs> show you some of this stuff on here. 
Um, this is an example of essentially using <coughs> the same um, materials and tools that are employed, oh, maybe not. Yeah, I've never heard of nice player before, but um, let's actually go back to here. I think this, well, oh God, this looks so terrible on your screen. I'm not sure if, if it's communicating <coughs> much of anything. Um, but um, yeah, let's see. Well, I'll just go back to here and, and show a bit of this. So um, this is an example of what you can do on kind of a larger scale using the same kinds of materials. Um, um, and there's a, a bit of sound here that you're not hearing, uh, but this is uh, a large, very large painting that has a lot of detail that's kind of obscured by the projection, I think. Um, that is again on a kind of a, uh, just a sheet of paper that you can interact with by kind of touching different parts of the paper and then moving around these dynamic elements. Um, and so what this example um, starts to hint at is how um, computational elements, when you expand the material palette that you use to construct, construct them, can really look and feel um, and uh, kind of look and feel really, really different, both in kind of aesthetic and in, in, and in cultural ways. Um, and then they can start to, we can start to interact with them also in very new and different ways. Um, so that's, let me show you one more of our kind of paper-based experiments. Um, this is, an experiment that um, oh God. Um, actually, so just let me give you some context of, um, before this place. So this is an example of a project that was done by one of my graduate students, G. Chi. Um, and here we're playing around with how we can um, use uh, kind of folding and the folding of paper and kind of these affordances, how we can start to think about that as a programmable um, material that we can work with. So how can we have paper that automatically folds itself? And once we can construct that kind of a material, what kinds of artifacts might we be able to build? Um, so here, what you're seeing is kind of these two sheets of paper, one which can detect how you're folding it there on the left, and then one which can then mimic that activity on the right. So this is just some early kind of engineering explorations along these lines, but what we're really trying to do here is kind of start to form a new language, kind of a new style of working with materials and computation. Um, and I'll just let this play because it's really charming. And you'll see that.
there's a kind of a nice moment that I wanted to leave it on for here where you actually kind of <laughs> flipped itself over. So, um, so maybe I'll, just in the interest of time, kind of leave it at that. I'll, I'll mention in passing that we've also done a fair amount of work in blending um, electronics and computation and textiles. That's been another area that we've been very interested in and active in for quite some time. Um, and one of my students currently is really engaged in kind of uh, using traditional processes like gilding and sculpting to actually construct um, electronic elements of various sorts. So, and you can find more information about a whole range of projects up um, on my website and my research group's website. Um, I, one of the things I'm thinking of listening to Liz is this idea of tools. Um, and, and all of you use tools um, to some degree, um, but maybe Leomor makes tools and, and makes actually, so in, in the sense of, in the sense of like, Mark, you didn't make basic and you didn't make the plotter, but you got them to do what they could do. Um, and I think John's sort of somewhere in the middle. Do you, do you want to like address that a little bit? How that? Um, uh, I can't, I can't feel it. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, um, the, the, there's a, a point where, where if, you, if, you, if you build something, um, say, for the screen, and, and it's a, it's a literary something. It, you know, there are words on the screen. The words perhaps move. Uh, you may be able to interact with them in some way. You may be able to add text. Um, and, then, and then there's the question of, uh, of what is the text? You know, the, the, what is it you're supposed to read? So, so that's, that's one thing. Um, so what is it I've made? Have I made a text? because that's the, the model for writers, they, they're supposed to make a text. Or have I made something that you play with? Or have I made something that you play in the sense of a musical instrument? Uh, so so, so the, the, the question of whether, whether you become, by doing this type of work, a, a tool maker or, a, or, a, or an instrument builder, or that, that's, a, that's a real question that has to be addressed. And you, you, you might want to, you might want to, rather than release something that's a finished artwork that you can't do anything with, you might want to release the thing that allows you to, allows other people to do something with it. And that's always, uh, that's always an issue, and it's, it, it, it becomes a, a question of, you know, uh, you know, of what you've made and, and how it should be used and how it should be seen and what the artistic aspect of it is. Yeah, sure. I, so uh, I'm very explicit in my own focus as um, the, uh, my primary interest really is to make tools. Um, and so that is how um, kind of my thinking tends to be organized. Um, we make tools. Um, I think it's interesting to think about uh, kind of different angles that you can approach that process um, through. So for example, we make some tools that are really physical um, kind of kits or uh, things that people can combine to build constructions. So they're 
very clearly kind of these literal physical tools that people would then use in larger projects. Um, but we also spend a fair amount of time building um, or designing and thinking about processes and new, trying to develop new processes for working with um, technology and computation. And then, then it's, a, it's an interesting question how best or how to, um, in a meaningful way, share and communicate kind of knowledge of process. And, and of course, new technology is really helping us kind of open new channels for communicating uh, information about process. But that's another thing that um, um, we spend a lot of time thinking about and, and doing. So uh, documenting our style of work and sharing it through various channels, through tutorials or even just videos like the one you saw um, just a moment ago. Um, but I think that um, that, that tools are, are tremendously important, especially in these new spaces that we're only beginning to explore. Um, and that these young communities uh, naturally, uh, I think, um, share tools and conversations and, and, and oftentimes um, uh, the community <coughs> will kind of come together around tools and around processes and that those are really um, compelling and important conversations. I was intrigued by George asking, um, his first question to you was, what programming language do you learn first? Because that's the, that's the exact question that I asked. So here we are, this team of practitioners, and we're like, oh, how did you make that? What, what's your process for this? Um, it feels revealing. Uh, when, I, when I first got involved in this, I, I thought that, uh, that there, some kind of distinct aesthetic was going to evolve out of all this. And uh, for instance, the, uh, the, uh, my fellow artists in the De Cordoba show are all, like myself, are all programmers. They write their own programs. The program runs and an image is uh, generated. Uh, so in some, in some ways, we're, we're kind of purists uh, in, in terms of this process. But what has happened in the last uh, 30, 40, 50 years is that these machines and uh, all of these uh, tools have become uh, so ubiquitous in, in not only the arts but in everyday life that uh, it seems to me like I'm not sure that there are any boundaries uh, between any of this uh, anymore. It's, it's, uh, all kinds of artists are using these uh, tools in, 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 in some cases in kind of trivial ways and in, in, other, in other ways they're using them in very sort of deep ways in, the, in that they're interacting directly uh, with the machine. But I'm not sure that boundaries exist anymore. It's just, it's one big continuum of of these machines and of artists utilizing them in, in all sorts of uh, different ways. But I also think as, as, as Leo, Leah's work sort of shows, it's also the machines are becoming ubiquitous in the sense that they're entering our very fabrics and our, um, our 
wristwatches, and I mean, we, 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 we are now wearing machines in a way that um, when this all started, you couldn't. They were the size of this room, you know. Um, you, you actually, Leah, make a commercial product which allows people to, would you want to just describe that quickly? Uh, sure, I can show a quick uh, image, actually. Um, now, what was the magic slideshow trick from here? Did that guy leave? Um, yeah, so uh, uh, a project that I've been working on for a few years now is a kit of sewable electronic components um, that you can stitch into textiles with electrically conductive thread to construct interactive, soft, soft interactive um, uh, pieces. So this is an example. This is a uh, sewable, uh, a tiny sewable computer. So this is a, a little computer in there that's been stitched onto a piece of denim. Um, and again, you can see that this is a really different looking and feeling computer than maybe the ones that we're used to. Um, this is a, a picture of the commercial kit. Um, so the translation of the initial design that I showed in the last stage um, into a mass production, uh, mass produced kit. And it consists of a little sewable computer in the center, um, a spool of conductive thread, and then an assortment of these uh, sensors and output devices like l lights and motors and light sensors and temperature sensors. Um, and so that's what that looks like here. Just a couple of images of constructions that people have made with the kit. Um, this is a piece of interactive needlepoint embroidery um, made by uh, uh, Rebecca Stern, Becky Stern. Um, uh, we've done a lot of work in education. So this is uh, a, a, a young boy who made this uh, persistence of vision wristband that he's waving around. And then here's a, just a collection of what people from around the world um, have made with the kit. And I'm hoping that maybe the audience sees a better image of some of these darker things than, than we're seeing here. But, um, but that's, a, that's um, the lily pad Arduino kit in kind of a nutshell and projects that different people have made. So it's a, it's a tool for other people to make yes. fashion which is another art form. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, and you can, so and back to the question, I, I'm not sure if, uh, if a, uh, a new or a uniform aesthetic emerges from this. In fact, it clearly kind of doesn't. But what I think is interesting that, you, that this starts to point out about tools is that this, whatever it is, although it's not uniform, it's certainly different than kind of the hacker kind of engineering-y aesthetic that, that is, you know, prevalent and identifiable, at least in certain communities, kind of pre this tool. So those are some of the things that we're interested in. Um, yes, let's um, take... Maybe <coughs> I just had to leave a comment that perhaps, could you use a microphone? Oh, yes, we have a mic there. Okay. Uh, I just had the little comment there that maybe um, I, I actually noticed they also been uh, teaching a bit Arduino and these other things that you can actually tell that certain projects has been done with that specific tool and device 
so even though you maybe don't know that there's processing behind it or Arduino behind it, while maybe in uh, Mark's case, being more of a purist and working more from the scratch in some ways, it, it, it gives uh, another feelings. Uh, you can't really sort of, it's, it's some kind of a pure aesthetic that has certain spirituality into it and everything that uh, can't really um, tells you more, sort of. So if you look maybe at a student project that has been using certain ready-made tools, then you can also read other sort of things and effects. Oh, there's that effect that belongs to that kind of ready-made tool and that effect. So. Maybe it's a little sort of, I haven't really thought about it or reflected about it, but I see a little thing there just uh, at first sight. Uh, I guess I would comment that uh, when, when I got involved in all of this, uh, one of my goals was to try and make images that uh, I thought couldn't really be made in any other way. And uh, uh, so, like, the speed and precision of the computer naturally led me to make these very uh, complex uh, uh, images. Uh, this is not to say that uh, some person couldn't make these images by hand. Uh, it's very unlikely they would. But uh, my, my interest was, was to try and utilize the tools, the software, and the, and the <coughs> computing machinery to, to make something that, that really couldn't be made uh, in any other way. I would, as a curator, I would add, though, that I think you're, you're onto something because um, this period of the algorithms who were, who were learning to code themselves and, were, and using that code to make imagery was followed in many ways by a second period of Photoshopists, and there's and Photoshop was one of those programs is one of those programs, but but at least in its initial use by artists, they all sort of became the same. It, you could, like you say, you could just see it, and you went Photoshop, and in a way that you I don't think you do with the algorithm prints that are at the de Cordova. And um, it was very rare to find an artist who really um, was using it in a, in a really unique um, and emotive way. Um, and, but, and as time went on and then everybody had access to it, it, it sort of changed. But it's, it, was, it was really that when it first stepped on the, on the um, stage, it was so clear that it was all being used in a very similar way by very by a lot of people, and it sort of screamed, um, you know, Photoshop. I, I agree, and I think I think the uh, one of the attractions of the algorithm of this early work is that, in fact, it's it's strangely it's closer to uh, processing. It's closer to expressive processing. It's 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 about the algorithm as 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 much as anything else, and and I also agree that. That, uh, I mean, one of the one of the motivations that that, that sometimes uh, surfaces in, in in my own work is the same sort of thing to try and do something that that only a computer could or would do, 
and then to test to see whether whether that uh, that is also an aesthetic for human uh, readers or or viewers. Uh, as, as an ex as an example, I mean to go back to the to the to the Google. If I, I make I make these texts where every every line of the text has to have a zero count, so it, it maybe a three-word line, and it has to be grammatical in some way, but it has to be it has to have not not be indexed by Google yet. But then to make the line joins, I, I make them, uh, I make phrases that, that stitch the, I call it stitching the lines together. So you get this bizarre text that you could write by hand, but it would be really, really difficult. I mean, it would take you, you know, you, how you establish whether, whether the line is a, a zero count line, and then how do you establish whether the, the stitching actually occurs in, in natural language or not. But but you produce a you produce a text that is weird uh, because it because you know it's it's never been done before. But then there's these bits where it seems to have been done before. So do you know whether or not something is a zero count you, without checking it from Google? I'm sorry, I'm trapped in here. Uh, Forgive me. Can you can you just tell? N no, no, you can't tell. You can't tell. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean you can guess. There's a lot of zero count language out there. Well, Ray, do you do anything with ambient power? Are you interested? Um, that is not something that we've specifically focused on in our lab. Um, lot, there are lots of wonderful projects along those lines. My, my favorite collection of recent work in that space is done by a woman named Joey Berzoska. Um, and she made a very uh, humorous and kind of lovely series of garments that harness human motion for power. Um, and one of the kind of, um, one of the things that they beautifully illustrate is just how kind of unfeasible the, that narrative is. So it's a very kind of impractical narrative. So when you harness power from the body, of course that means you harness power from the body. So you end up wearing these really exhausting kind of intense kind of <laughs> things where you're laboring to kind of go about your day-to-day -to -day life. So that's a beautiful project that I'd point you to. You had a question. Yeah, I think we want to move the mic around here, so just wait for a second. I was curious, you know, most uh, computer science or, or programmers talk about the aesthetic of the code itself, um, its simplicity or its style or its elegance. And I was just curious, perhaps even from your earlier days, if there was a, a focus on the aesthetic of the code that was producing the art as well as just the art itself. Uh, I, I am a... Uh, I would describe myself as an amateur programmer and a very sloppy uh, programmer. And uh, I have always been very pragmatic about uh, using software to achieve a goal. And so essentially if I get, if I get something to work, it's, I'm happy with it. Uh, one of the other things I learned very early on about writing software is that uh, any problem that you need to solve, it turns out that there are literally dozens of different ways that you can solve it. 
And uh, eventually, over time, you realize that some ways are a lot better than other, <laughs> other ways. And uh, so I'm, I, I have never been paid too much attention to the elegance of, of code or the elegance of algorithms. Uh, I know that from a mathematical standpoint, uh, this is very important and uh, uh, people regard it as a kind of an aesthetic uh, process. But uh, I have always been kind of nuts and bolts, uh, results oriented, and so if I could get something to work, then I'm happy with it. And then I want to forget about it, and I don't want to dig into it and figure out if there's a, a better way to do it. Do you want to, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, in, in, in my field it's, well, I, I'm also a pragmatic programmer and not very, and very kludgy. Um, but um, but in my field it's a little bit weird because uh, because code seems to be like language. They're, they're both symbolic systems, and they and so there've been there's a there's a sort of a, a sub a sub uh, class of of, uh, of work in in writing digital media, which which addresses the code as as if it was the text. And uh, you know and then there's also the famous Perl poetry, where you, you where you have you have things that can be read by humans as a poem, and then, but they're also executable once they're compiled. And and you know, I, I've dabbled in that sort of thing, and 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 that's a, a another aspect of how code can be aesthetic. But I definitely think that I definitely think that code and computation are both fields uh, for aesthetic practice. And and very early on, there were there was talk about this, and one of the groups that was working was a, a whole group of um, uh, computer artists in Japan who formed a, a society and, and as a group showed at this uh, cybernetic serendipity. And they're sort of famous for saying that the art was what took place when the computer ran the code and the graphic was merely the evidence of that art. So they had turned this into a sort of a um, uh, a mental image of what the art was versus what the image was. There was somebody way in back. I, I just have a question for you, George, and ah. for Mark. Um, and I want to go back to the algorithm. I would love for you to contextualize Mark, if you can, since you really are a living legend in this field, um, how in the last six years all of a sudden the algorithm are now starting to get international attention from numerous countries, numerous scholars, numerous curators. I just got a note from Doug that they're going to have another show. Um, and then from you, George, having spent time, how do you contextualize the algorithm in terms of the continuum of art history? And I thought Professor Cayley's comment about the digital decode, digital pioneers, um, was pretty on. And there are a lot of people coming out of the woodworks and actually starting to write books about what we saw last year. Thank you. Do you want to? Well, uh, I, I'm, I'm delighted that uh, uh, people like myself are uh, getting uh, uh, attention. Uh, obviously, it's very uh, gratifying. But uh, again, uh, you know, I, I, I think that the real magic of all of this was uh, the kind of the process of uh, discovery. And uh, while we may have been ignored by the larger art worlds, uh, it was uh, such a uh, 
magical thing that we were uh, involved in that kept us all going. And it was uh, re really exciting, and, and still is. Um, everyone, by the way, the questioner is Michael Spalter, um, whose collection um, Drawing With Code comes from. Uh, and um, I, I, I mean, I think that the history of new media, which is a sort of a big catchphrase, is a fascinating thing because in many ways when people look at things like digital literature and um, computer graphics, and they almost don't think it has a history. It's so new. And so going back and finding these stories is, is very important. And it's important to remember that three mediums all about the same time um, stepped over this analog digital threshold. Um, music, which in many ways was the first, uh, graph, computer graphics, visu the visual arts, and literature. And um, so early in literature, early practitioners like, like Weizenbaum and Eliza and things like that um, were already sort of exploring this. And in music, um, um, there were a number of people doing um, early electronic music. Um, and yet, in music especially, it became, for some reason, more acceptable to use a computer as a musical instrument than in the visual arts or in literature. And yet today, it's, it's ironic because we look back today and we see all of this around us. I mean, I have an iPhone full of iPhone art um, that you know you buy for $1.99 and you spend hours playing with um, by really important artists. And so it's important that now this historical story is coming to be known. And besides the Victorian Albert, um, the ZKM in Germany, um, the Kunstball Bremen in, in Bremen, Germany, are all starting to build collections of this work and really treating it the way it should have been treated um, 40, 50 years ago. Other questions? Thank you. Um, this may be a very naive question, but um, what's happening to the identity of the artist um, in this work, meaning how recognizable is the art, um, how recognizable is the artist in terms of attributing um, the art to artists when you see it? Um, it? If it's programmable, then if it's programmed, then is it not reproducible very easily? Um, again, this may be a very naive question, but I'm um, as a retro techno, I'm sort of coming at this from, from the standpoint of the art, the art that I know, um, where you, you, you can recognize the hand of the artist. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, is, is, Mark, is your art absolutely recognizable by collectors? Maybe I should be asking the collectors. <laughs> well, I, I think that uh, uh, many uh, of the artists have, uh, do indeed have a, a strong uh, artistic identity and a strong uh, aesthetic uh, uh, identity and uh, I don't really think that there's any distinction between the so-called so digital artist and uh, 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 conventional uh, artist. I would, I would just add that at, if you go and see Drawing With Code you'll see that every single artist has this very, very unique um, 
set of problems they're working with, set of solutions they're coming up with that, that you can, and, and the last gallery in the show um, has Mark Wilson, um, Jean-Pierre Herbert, and Roman Verasco, and there's no way you could possibly um, confuse any single piece by any one of them with any single piece by any of the others. Um, and I think the, you, the phrase you used was, um, can you, can you, um, can you differentiate um, in this work like you can between the hand of the artist? Well, I think if this, what we're talking about here, is just the mind of the artist. Thank you. Um, um, I guess I, I'm wondering, is, is it not, though, much more easily um, reproduced um, than, than other art? Um, can't you sort of figure out the code and, and um, much like, again, I'm coming at this from a completely naive um, um, perspective in, in, in MIT and, and the, being audacious enough to open my mouth um, about this, but um, much like, like Photoshop, I mean, at, at, at some point, isn't it pretty easy to make Mark's work? I, 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 I completely... I, I think what you're asking is, can you forge code? Yeah. And I suppose it's possible. Um, it's probably easier and more lucrative to just try and pick up a brush and paint a Picasso um, <laughs> than it would be to try and come up with the code necessary to... Um, create a Jean-Pierre Hebert, um, but I don't know. I'm not a I'm not a coder myself. Okay, I, I'll, uh, I'll end though by saying that I thought it was a remarkable show, and I absolutely loved your work. And um, and this is from somebody who collects drawing, so um, whatever. Thank you. <laughs> um, in the middle, um, So my question is actually for John. I was wondering, do you know if there's, uh, with with like the what will you what, what with what you do with words and and the way you like deal with language, is there anything in music where you find that people are doing the same thing with notes and maybe going through pieces that have been created to create their own, like doing the whole process that you describe, but with music? If there's any artists you know of who are doing something like that, um, I I can't I can't quote you particular artists. I'd be really I'm sure there's. There's people working um, regularly with with uh, you know with quotation from other works and sort of re reincorporate. I mean, mixing, uh, you know, mashups. It'd be interesting. I bet you'd hear some really interesting sounds if you did something like that. But yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, there's, there's a lot of processing in music. Yeah. Andrew may have the answer to that question. Um, Just a quick response. To that. Pass the mic back. <clears throat> And it sort of harkens back into the, about, I think, the 60s, the 50s, but um, Colin Noncaro, who is an American composer, who in fact, and it's quite analogous to the early computing systems where he used punch cards. And Colin Noncaro was an expatriate. He moved, lived his life in Mexico. But he decided that he wanted to make music that was impossible for humans to play, technically. So he made pieces for player pianos. And a player piano role is nothing more than sort of a moving punch card, in fact. So he built, or he wrote these uh, piano rolls, and the music that you hear is phenomenal, in my opinion. But it's, again, something that human hands could never play. Um, although it has been uh, since transcribed, so you can hear different ensembles, different instrumentation playing it, and uh, 
somebody that Frank Zappa had high regards for too. So that pretty much. I think we have time for one more question. Um, over there. generation of uh, inkjet printers have really excellent archival uh, properties and I, I, I think that uh, if the works are uh, taken reasonably good uh, care of they'll they'll last uh, as long as uh, almost any other uh, artwork uh, at least a uh, visual artwork and uh, uh, for instance my all of my image files are Postscript files, which is a very, uh, in some ways, can be a very, very simple kind of rudimentary way of describing lines and uh, colors. So, presumably, uh, if someone can read my hard drive in 200 years, they'll be able to figure out what uh, you know a million lines of postscript means. So, I, you know, again, it's like. Uh, Art, any kind of artwork, if, if someone really wants to preserve it, if a collector is really interested in it and, and finds it of, of importance, they'll figure out a way uh, to preserve it. And that's always been true in the past. If somebody makes a painting on a piece of Kleenex and a collector loves it, uh, they'll figure out a way to preserve it. Yeah. I completely agree with that. I think that's basically right. But but the but, but the problem of archiving, uh, of creating an archive for a new work, especially in this sort of there's this weird transitional period, where there was a a, a vast range of, of hardware and software platforms that that uh, and now we're sort of settling down. That's both that's both good and bad. Uh, and and I speak as someone whose whose early work is I can't I can't run it myself without digging it digging it. Um, and and the hardware problems are are solvable. The software problems are actually worse. And and as as time goes on and software becomes the equivalent of uh, you know part of the world, what the way things are really structured and channeled is is built of software. Then then that's what it'll that's what will make it hard to address early early software or software that doesn't fit into the world of software that will be built by major corporations, possibly regulated by governments and possibly not. <laughs> for a whole host of reasons. 
I do every class. My first class, one of my students is nodding her head up there, um, just to scare the bejesus out of these young digital um, artists. Um, and it's not just about digital art, it's about digital culture. But um, I'll just quote, and I cannot remember the person's name, but Stuart Brain quotes him all the time. Um, but this famous quote, digital media lasts forever or five years, whichever comes first. <laughs> um, thank you all. Thank you, Mark, John, Leah, George. We really appreciate your time and talents this evening and for loaning that to us. Just a reminder, Drawing with Code is up at Cordova through April 24th. And Nick, if you have any last words. Thanks very much for coming for this conversation. Hope to see you in future Purple Blurbs.